Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the 12th audio episode of the Semester on Course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants or graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will focus on one, class and labor organizing, two, we will talk about growing economic inequality and the feminization of poverty, three, I'll also discuss the impact of COVID-19 and the concept of a gendered recession or she-session, though I don't like that term. I'll introduce the concept of neoliberalism, we'll talk about capitalism and exploitation, and the lecture will finish by discussing the role of labor in the university. This lecture will set the stage for the next lecture on labor. Let's get started. Don't you know the talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper? Don't you know the talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper? While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know they're talking about a revolution It sounds like a whisper Today's song is Talking About a Revolution by Tracy Chapman from 1988 Tracy Chapman is a politically and socially active musician. You may know her from her song, Fast Car. In a 2009 interview with American Radio Network NPR, she is quoted as saying, starting quote, I'm approached by lots of organizations and lots of people who want me to support their various charitable efforts in some way, and I look at those requests and basically try to do what I can, and I have certain interests of my own, generally an interest in human rights, end quote. This interest in human rights can be seen lyrically, in her music. Songs such as the 1988 song, Talking About Revolution, highlights the importance of speaking up against injustice. I picked her song for today's lecture because of the lyrics like, don't you know, talking about revolution sounds like a whisper. When they're standing in the welfare lines, people going to rise up and get their share, where people going to rise up and take what's there. Here Chapman draws attention to wealth inequality. I'll begin by discussing labor movement histories and then get into economic inequality. This will be a very, very brief overview and I will definitely jump around a bit. Don't worry, I'll summarize the main takeaways. In the US and Canada, we can see labor movements in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. In the US context, at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, labor organizing centered on creating the eight-hour workday, ending child labor, and establishing basic worker protections. The history of workers' unions is also an important component. For example, we can see instances of working class demands for the eight-hour day and Chicago's Haymarket Affair in May of 1886. We've already talked a little about labor organizing in the 1930s in the aftermath of the stock market crash and into the Great Depression. Workers' rights movements and labor rights movements have been ongoing throughout the past three centuries, including farm workers' movement rights. Remember when I talked about De La Dolores Huerta, and Cesar Chavez previously. Working class and workers' labor's rights have been important cornerstones of social justice organizing in the American and Canadian context. 
Writers such as Karl Marx and Frederick Engels have been influential in discussing the oppressive structure of capitalism and the exploitation of labor. Remember how I also mentioned in past lectures that for some feminists in the 1960s and 1970s, they got their start in workers' rights and labor activism and or in civil rights activism, which included activism around workers' rights and access to housing? We've also talked about the concept of intersectionality and how even before the term was coined by Crenshaw in 1989, women of color, primarily black feminists, were discussing gender, race, and class, and poor and working class white feminists were discussing gender and class. Within much of the literature, gender, race, and class are the three intersections that we see discussed most in feminist discourse before sexual orientation, disability status, immigration status, age, and other factors have been or were considered. Discussions of labor rights were often discussed around class, but not always. As middle and upper class feminists pushed to gain access to work outside the home, poor and working class women already were working outside the home, whether they wanted to or not, based on economic need. Many pushes in the labor movements that focused on the eight-hour workday did not acknowledge or take into account household labor and who, and of what gender, primarily does household labor. This will be a topic explored more in the next lecture. This lack of attention to gender labor is also a critique that gets levied against Marx and is discussed by Engels. This is a critique also levied by Marxist feminists. Okay, so I've been jumping around quite a bit, touching on points from the 19th century to today, but basically what I want you to get from this is that 1. Class is gendered and gender is classed. 2. Workers' movements and labor movements have not always paid attention to gender and or race. 3. Feminist movements have not always paid enough attention to class. 4. It is important to understand the ways that gender is classed and racialized race is gendered and class, and class is gendered and racialized. So looking over the past centuries, we can see an ebb and flow of workers gaining rights and workers losing rights. The majority of today's lecture will focus on the 1970s today, basically the last 50 or so years. This 50-year period is useful for understanding our current economic situation and workers' rights movements. It is also really useful to look at in order to understand shifts in feminist discussions around labor rights and work. While we will look at the way that feminist activists gained some workplace rights in the 1970s, the dawn of neoliberalism in the 1980s leads to the loss of workers' protections, or rather, the dawn of the rise of neoliberalism in the 1980s. While it is a bit of a complicated history, we can see a continued degradation of many workers' rights from the 1980s until today. A key factor in how this happens is the growth of neoliberalism. Okay, so you may have heard of neoliberalism before, but I'll define it for you based off of the work of geographer David Harvey. So neoliberalism is the doctrine that market exchange is an ethic in itself, capable of acting as a guide for all human action. It's a 20 20th century resurgence of 19th century ideas associated with laissez-faire, economic liberalism, and free market capitalism. It's generally associated with policies of economic liberalization, including privatization, deregulation, globalization, free trade, austerity, and reductions in government spending in order to, in order to increase the role of the private sector in the economy and society. 
It's become dominant in both thought and practice throughout much of the world since the 1970s, and David Harvey argues that figures such as Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s were key in bringing in neoliberal policies. Its spread has depended upon a reconstitution of state powers, such that privatization, finance, and market processes are emphasized. State interventions in the economy are minimized, while the contribution, the obligations of the state to provide for the welfare of its citizens are diminished. So while Thatcher and Reagan are often cited as primary authors of this neoliberal term, Harvey in his book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, shows how a complex of forces from Chile to China, from New York City to Mexico City, have also played their part. We can see the role of the World Trade Organization, the WTO, and the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. In addition, he explores the continuities and contrasts between neoliberalism of different American political parties from the Democrat sort and the recent turn towards neoconservative imperialism that we can see with figures such as George W. Bush. Finally, through critical engagement with history, Harvey constructs a framework not only for analyzing the political and economic dangers that now surround us, but also for asserting the prospects for the more socially just alternatives being advocated by many oppositional movements. So neoliberal policies lead to the exploitation of the global south by policies of the global north. This leads to a disenfranchisement of those in the global south, particularly women. This also leads to the exploitation of those in the global north, particularly women, since these policies lower wages at home with austerity measures and weaken the social safety net. Under neoliberalism, we can see how hard-fought labor rights are rolled back, or were rolled back. It's important to also understand the role of technology and tech companies in rolling those rights back. Part of this has to do with the rise of the gig economy and the casualization of labor. Centuries of labor activism led to many forms of work protections. Tech companies such as Uber argue that they did not have employees, but were rather platforms to bring together independent contractors with customers in order to get around many of these worker protections. Uber is not alone in these practices. States such as California have passed legislation to try to protect gig workers and filed a suit against Uber and Lyft in May of 2020. While proponents of the gig economy will argue that it leads to more flexibility, what we see in practice is an exploitation of a workforce without worker benefits and worker protections. We will speak about this topic in more detail when we read Astra Taylor's piece, The Automation Trade, for our technology lecture, so look forward to that. In addition to neoliberalist policies being advocated for from many many major political parties, The rise in automation, policies of exploiting resources and labor from the global south to the global north, we now approach another economic recession or potentially depression exacerbated by the pandemic. So not only has the pandemic brought about death and illness for people around the world, wealth inequality and income inequality have exacerbated the pandemic's effects. In Canada and the United States, the racialization of poverty and the gendered nature of poverty has meant that communities of color and indigenous communities have borne the effects disproportionately. During the pandemic, we have also seen growing wealth inequality that while thousands of people lose their jobs, billionaires are making more money than ever before. 
In June of 2020, Jeff Bezos made $13 billion in one day. That amount of money is quite difficult to understand. You would have to work over 21,000 years at the pay rate of $46,000 a year to just make $1 billion. In the transcript, I've included a link to data visualization of the type of wealth we're talking about. All you have to do on this link is scroll to the right and you see how much money this is. An important term for understanding this discussion is the feminization of poverty. The feminization of poverty describes a phenomenon in which women represent disproportionate percentages of the world's poor. UNIFEM describes it as the burden of poverty borne by women, especially in developing countries. This concept is not only a consequence of a lack of income, but also the result of the deprivation of capabilities and gender biases present in both societies and governments. This includes the poverty of choices and opportunities, such as the ability to lead a long, healthy, and creative life and enjoy basic freedoms like uh, basic rights like freedom, respect, and dignity. The report card on women in poverty for 2020 looks at the situation of poverty and income inequality in Canada. The writers of the report state, precarious and low-wage work is widespread and social assistance remains abysmal abysmally low, creating a floor that is only one small step above destitution. The rise in housing costs, food prices, childcare fees, and costs of prescription medication, along with other necessities, mean families are left to make difficult choices every day about what they can afford and what they must do without. Inequality and poverty are rooted in systematic discrimination and stratified along lines of indigenous identity, race, gender, immigration status, or lack of ability, among other social, cultural, and economic locations that result in specific populations being unable to access opportunities available to all other Canadians, end quote. I've included a link to the report in the transcript. I've also included the link to the 2000 report if you're interested in comparing the reports from this 20-year time period. Poverty affects health, educational opportunities, and safety. Women and children disproportionately experience poverty. As the report outlines, poverty in Canada is racialized and disproportionately experienced by Indigenous peoples as a result of colonialism. As the the report speaks to, there is also a housing crisis. The report uses the word homeless. However, I will use the word unhoused or unhomed rather than homeless. The terms unhoused and unhomed speak to the societal failing to make sure that everyone has shelter, and it implies that there is a moral and social assumption that everyone should be housed in the first place. This terminology moves away from saying that a person is defined by their having access to a home or housing security or insecurity. Another component of the feminization of poverty is the wage gap. The wage gap refers to the gender gap in wages. Most of the studies only look at gender binary in only look at gender and binary terms and do not include statistics for non-binary and gender non-conforming folks. As a group in Canada, according to Stats Canada's 2018 report, which I've linked to in the transcript, women in Canada make 84 cents compared to men's $1. The report includes information such as industries that employ higher rates of women are are lower paying and that a greater percentage of women are employed in part-time work, often due to childcare. 
Another key part of this infographic is that it doesn't compare the wage gap based on comparing men and women in the same job, nor does it compare men and women based on their educational level. For example, 97% of truck drivers in Canada are men and earn a median salary of $45,417 per year. In contrast, 97% of early childhood educators in Canada are women and earn a median salary of $25,334 per year. And lest you say that women just choose lower paying jobs, we actually see that when women enter a field in higher numbers, wages are deflated. When women are in a field that is becoming more profitable, women get pushed out and more men enter. So we can see this phenomenon with computing. Early computers, as in people who compute, were mostly women. As the tech industry became more profitable, women got pushed out and men became more dominant in the field. If you're interested in this topic, I recommend Mar Hicks's 2018 book, Programmed Inequality. The Stats Canada infograph states that the gap would actually be higher from 84 cents to a dollar difference, um, except more women are obtaining higher rates of education than men. So basically women have to have a higher degree of education to still make less money. The matter is even more complicated. According to the Canadian Women's Forum, the gender pay gap is typically measured in three different ways. Compare the annual earnings by gender for both full-time and part-time workers. On this basis, Women workers in Canada earned an average of 69 cents for every dollar earned by men in 2016. This measurement results in the largest pay gap because more women work part-time and part-time workers typically earn less than full-time workers, even on an hourly basis. Compare the annual earnings of full-time workers. On this basis, women workers in Canada earned an average of 75 cents for every dollar earned by men in 2016. Statistics Canada notes that the measure above doesn't account for the fact that full-time working women tend to work fewer hours than men, often because of family responsibilities. Thus, comparing the hourly pay of full-time working women to those of men provides a more precise picture of the pay gap. On this basis, women earned an average of $0.87 cents for every dollar earned by men in 2015. In the 20 years between 1998 and 2018, the gender pay gap based on hourly pay decreased by $1.04 or 5.5 percentage points. The Stats Canada infographic report doesn't talk about the differences between women. However, the Canadian Women's Forum has assembled data based on the 2016 Canadian Census, which I've linked to in the transcript. Data from the 2016 Canadian Census shows that Indigenous women make $0.65 cents per men's $1. Within the United States context, it's easier to find statistics that look at racial disparities regarding the gender wage gap. Again, as I've just explained, since there are three ways to measure the wage gap, the numbers vary a bit. Based on a report from the Institute for Women's Policy Research, looking at data from the U.S. Census Bureau in the United States around 2017-2018, white women made around 78.6 cents per the average white man's $1.00. Black women made around 61.8 cents, Asian women made around 90.2 cents, and Latina women make around 54.5 cents. I've linked to the report in the transcript. As you can see, these numbers are quite stark. 
54.5 cents for every $1 a white man makes? A 2017 study from the Institute for Women's Policy Research in the United States found that if equal pay were achieved, it would cut working women's poverty levels in half. Estimates vary, but a 2017 study from the World Economics Forum has stated that it will take around 217 years to close the economic gender gap worldwide if present trends continue. As well, there is evidence that the wage gap is closing, not so much because more women are getting better paid jobs, but actually because men's wages have failed to increase. So we know that women are often paid less for doing the same job and that women are often paid less even if they have more credentials, as in higher education. This phenomenon is also racialized. Some of you may have found out in the past that you were being paid less than your coworkers for doing the same job. Situations where I have found out that I am being paid less than men doing the same job for the same organization have made me a big proponent of pay transparency. Not knowing what other people are paid makes it really hard to negotiate. It also makes it difficult to know if you are being underpaid. Sometimes new employers will use your past salary as justification for your new salary. As we know, women are already paid less to begin with, so this continues the cycle. In the United States in 2017, an appeals court ruled employers can pay women less based on past salaries. This decision by the 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals overturned a lower court ruling that said pay differences based on exclusively on prior salaries were discriminatory under the Federal Equal Pay Act. It is because of systematic barriers like these that I want us to challenge the lean-in rhetoric advocated by Sheryl Sandberg. So for those of you who don't know, Sheryl Sandberg is the Chief Operating Officer of Facebook, and she wrote this book called Lean In, which basically said that all women should ask for raises more and place the onus on women to improve their working conditions. This book didn't take into account that many women already do ask for raises and are often denied. It didn't take into account the way that women sometimes are punished in workplaces or not seen as team players if or when they ask for raises. Ruth Whitman's article in the New York Times entitled, Enough Leaning In, Let's Tell Men to Lean Out, which I have linked to in the transcript, argues that the assertiveness movement that has taken a male-defined value system and sold it back to us as feminism is lacking. In this article, Whitman addresses the systematic issues in workplaces and says that the lean-in philosophy puts the onus on individuals. Whitman writes, So perhaps instead of nagging women to scramble to meet the male standard, we should instead be training men and boys to aspire to women's cultural norms and selling those norms to men as both default and desirable, to be more deferential, to reflect and listen and apologize where an apology is due, and if unsure, to err on the side of a superfluous sorry than an absent one, to aim for modesty and humility and cooperation rather than blowhard arrogance. Catherine Goldstein's article, entitled I Was a Cheryl Sandberg Superfan, Then Her Lean In Advice Failed Me, The End of Lean In Feminism, chronicled by a former evangelist, addresses this topic in more detail. She writes, My thinking about women and workplaces is now in pretty direct opposition to Sandberg's lean-in message. I believe telling mothers to raise their hands and try harder in the open sea of hostility we face in the workplace is like handing a rubber ducky to someone hit by a tsunami. I think it is also inadvertently encourages us to internalize our own discrimination, leading us to blame ourselves for getting passed over for raises, eased out of jobs, 
not getting called for job interviews, and being denied promotions. Unsurprisingly, I've linked to the article in the transcript. These authors, amongst other feminist writers, say that the problem with the lean end mentality is that it asks women to emulate the toxic culture and doesn't actually change the conditions for most women. The lean in rhetoric doesn't address systematic sexism, nor does it deal with classism and racism. This is a concern shared by theorist Nancy Fraser in her piece entitled How Feminism Became Capitalism's Handmaiden and How to Reclaim It, a movement that started out as a critique of capitalist exploitation, ended up contributing key ideas to its latest neoliberal phase. The link to the article is in the transcript. Fraser here writes, As a feminist, I've always assumed that by fighting to emancipate women, I was building a better world, more egalitarian, just and free. But lately, I've begun to worry that the ideals pioneered by feminists are serving quite different ends. I worry specifically that our critique of sexism is now supplying the justification for new forms of inequality and exploitation. In a cruel twist of fate, I fear that the movement for women's liberation has become entangled in a dangerous liaison with neoliberal efforts to build a free market society. That would explain how it came to pass that feminist ideas that once formed part of a radical worldview are increasingly expressed in individualist terms, where feminists once criticized a society that promoted careerism, they now advise women to lean in. A movement that once prioritized social solidarity now celebrates female entrepreneurs. A perspective that once valorized care and interdependence now encourages individual advancement and meritocracy. Frazier reminds us that the capitalist exploitation and patriarchy are intertwined. Feminism must address classism and not seek to emulate an individualistic model that we see in the kind of lean-in rhetoric. Overcoming the wage gap is not based on one woman asking for her wages to be raised. It requires systematic change. Unfortunately, our current economic situation is not too helpful. So before I move on to the next part of the lecture, I want to again note that so much of this discourse is based around binary gender terms. The research, when conducted, really only speaks to the male and female binary. Part of the work of addressing exploitation and workplace discrimination also requires challenging this gender binary and being inclusive to gender non-binary individuals. Okay, so now we're going to talk a bit about how the current economic situation exacerbates a lot of the problems that we've already been talking about. During the pandemic, we are seeing also the disproportionate economic effects on women. It's why some people have called the impending recession or potentially depression a she-session. I'm not a huge fan of the term. However, it does point to the ways that the pandemic has disproportionately affected women and their jobs. Without schools and without daycares, Children need childcare at home during the pandemic. Well, who's going to do this work? Overall, it has disproportionately been done by women. Women who work outside the home, a term that I'll talk that I used to talk about doing paid labor outside the home. So women who work outside the home are now bearing even greater childcare responsibilities. As women overall are paid less than men, in two wage earner families consisting of a man and a woman, when one wage earner has to quit their job to take care of the family, it is usually women, since it makes short-term economic sense for the family. Lo- women are losing their jobs without schools. 
For women who have jobs that they can do from home, they're finding that they're having to turn down a lot of workplace opportunities due to increased childcare. This is happening across fields. The effects aren't going to be short-term either. They will, likely, they will likely last for decades. This phenomenon is one of the reasons why I'm teaching this course by audio, and I'm trying to make the scheduling flexible. Some of you are parents or are doing care work. Finding the time to sit in front of a Zoom recording or a full three-hour video lecture probably isn't possible, but might be possible to listen to lectures when you commute, walk your dog, do the dishes, or pick up groceries. Some of you are at home and are having to care for younger siblings, share a single computer or family space, or don't have a computer. I want you to be able to have more flexibility and make the course more accessible. Hopefully you can come back and take notes on the transcripts and explore the links. You can also pause and rewind, slow, or speed up the lecture pace. To be the best of my abilities within the confines of the university, I want to make this class accessible to parents and to people with care responsibilities, whether that is taking care of children, other relatives, or other people in your life. However, we cannot forget all the many ways that the recession's effects will be classed, gendered, and racialized. It's particularly affecting young people, with millennials and Gen Z bearing many of the consequences. It is leading to stagnated wages and the rise of the billionaire class. Change is possible. One necessary component of bringing about change requires changing our current ways of thinking about the economy. Here is where Marilyn Warren's Counting for Nothing, What Men Value and What Women Are Worth, first published in 1988, comes in. Before I jump into Warren's arguments, it's important to define a couple of terms. The gross domestic product, also known as the GDP, is the monetary value of all the finished goods and services produced within a country's borders in a specific time period, though GDP is usually calculated on an annual basis. The gross national product is the market value of all the products and services produced in one year by labor and property supplied by the citizens of a country. This is why you can't directly compare GDP to GNP. So Counting for Nothing, originally published in 1988, is a classic feminist text which analyzes women's place in the world economy and challenges our current models of economic measurement. Warren is a New Zealand-based public policy scholar, international development consultant, former politician, environmentalist, feminist, and a principal founder of feminist economics. She criticizes a system which counts oil spills and wars as contributors to economic growth, while childbearing and housekeeping are deemed valueless. Warren's book is a systematic critique of the system of national accounts, the international standard of measuring economic growth and the ways in which women's unpaid work, as well as the value of nature, have been excluded from what counts as productive in the economy. While measures like GDP and GNP show that an economy improves during a war when weapons are built, Warren asks us how can we value this as a good thing? What about having clean air? What about clean water? What about happiness? She argues that by measuring the GDP and GNP as a measure of success, countries end up supporting policies that do not lead to human flourishing. Another important point is that these forms of measurement do not even measure housework, child rearing, cooking, and cleaning upon which the economy depends. This form of reproduc reproductive labor, which we'll discuss in more detail in the next lecture when discussing Sylvia Federici's work, is necessary for the rest of the economy to even function. Without food, workers can't work. 
without child rearing, there's no new generation of workers. GDP and GNP also do not measure the black market, which is huge. Measurements like GDP and GNP being used as a way to measure country success encourage constant growth and thus the unsustainable constant consumption of resources. So you might be asking, is capitalism inherently problematic? What are the impacts of capitalism on women's oppression? Does capitalist development diminish gender inequality in developing countries? Do women's autonomy, health, and well-being rise together with an increase in women's employment? What is the policy framework which can promote gender equity? This is a subset of questions that feminist economists ask. Another question, does capitalism equal exploitation? In the transcript, I've included an image of a pyramid with the heading, the iceberg model of capitalist patriarchal economies. At the top of the pyramid, we can see capital and wage labor. To the right are the words labor contract and to the left, visible economy, GNP. Then a line cuts across with the notes invisible economy, not in the GNP and no labor contract. Here, continuing downward on the pyramid, we can see homework and formal sector child labor. This is followed by subsistence, peasants work, below is housework with the role of women, with the note um, women as women do the majority of housework. Next, there is the layer labeled colonies, external and internal. The base of the pyramid is nature. The GNP relies on all these other levels of non-contracted labor in order to exist, yet in a capitalist society, it is only the paid work that is valued. Capitalism depends on the exploitation of people, animals, land, nature, and resources further down the pyramid in order to function. So while in the non-visible economy, there are many levels of exploitation, even within the visible economy of paying labor, we can see the exploitation of workers. This takes many forms. We started this lecture by talking about labor movements. In 2020, we see more and more threats to the 40-hour workweek, which was fought for by labor advocates. Technology such as email enables employees to reach empl employer ugh, enables employers to reach employees at all hours of the day. We see the degradation of many worker protections. These issues are compounded by the student debt crisis and the manner in which many people cannot get out of debt they incurred going to university in order to be employable. In Canada, about one in six bankruptcies is from student debt. In the United States, this debt crisis is astronomical. Some of my friends have over $100,000 in student debt, an amount they doubt they can ever repay. Housing prices continue to surge. Costs of housing and food rise while wages are stagnant. The minimum wage was originally conceived of in order to be a living wage in which you could support a family. However, the minimum wage cannot support individuals' rent in any states and throughout most of Canada. So make this clear, a living wage is not the same as the minimum wage, which is the legal minimum all employers must pay. The living wage sets a higher test. A living wage reflects what earners in a family need to bring home based on the actual cost of living in a specific community. I've included a link to a comic in the transcripts that explores the history of the minimum wage in more detail. While on the one hand, we can see activists working towards raising the minimum wage to be a living wage. On the other hand, we see unpaid labor and the phenomenon of people being paid inexperienced. Over the past couple of years, 
We have seen protests against the phenomenon of mandatory unpaid stages or internships as part of degree programs. I've linked in the transcript to an article about 2018 protest regarding these unpaid internships. Internships, mandatory or not, lead to further income inequality. Only people with resources to help them pay the rent are able to work without pay. This means that only people with certain economic privilege can take unpaid work or must work multiple jobs. Artists who are told that they will be paid in exposure know that exposure doesn't pay the bills. I want to draw a distinction between volunteering and unpaid work and internships. There's a difference between volunteering your time for the local animal shelter that can't afford to keep the lights on or working a crisis hotline, and that's quite different from a major media conglomerate refusing to pay you minimum wage for a stodge or internship. We've talked in the past about some of the barriers that women face in the workplace already. This is a topic that we will explore in more detail in the next lecture. Gender isn't the only factor, though. I want us to remember that it wasn't until the 2010s that Canada banned LGBTQ workplace discrimination, and it wasn't until July of 2020 that the U.S. Supreme Court said that employers can't fire you because you are gay or trans. I also want us to be aware of the exploitation of people with disabilities. People with disabilities can be paid as little as three cents an hour in the United States. The reason someone can legally be paid a subminimum wage is simple. A clause in the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act that allows any firm with what's called a 14C certificate to pay out wages based on productivity or ability. This created a situation in which disabled workers might be paid anywhere from the standard federal wage of $7.25 an hour to as little as $0.03 cents per hour in the name of creating jobs for those who might not otherwise find one. This terrible phenomenon is discussed in a Vice video that I've linked to in the transcript. We need to pay attention to the fact that people who are imprisoned are also paid below minimum wage. Many corporations use prison labor to produce their products and pay workers between $0.33 cents and $1.41 an hour. In the United States, restaurants are only required to pay their wait staff what is known as the tipped minimum wage, which is $2.13 per hour. In Canada, servers in many provinces are paid less than the standard minimum wage. While Alberta has one wage, here in Quebec, servers also make a different amount than the minimum wage, and it's much lower um, than the general wage, not just, okay, here in Quebec, servers make not just less than the minimum wage, but it's actually much lower than most other provinces. So servers in Quebec only earn $9.80 per hour, making it the worst server wage in the country. That's why tipping's important. Right now, I'm not going to go into the full history of tipping right now, but know that involves a very racist and classist history. Okay, so we've already covered a lot of material today. However, you are all students. So I want to discuss the ways that neoliberal policies, austerity measures, and the corporatization of universities affects you and your professors. For some of you, this is your first, first semester at university. So welcome, some of you are upper level students. You might think that in a university, you have professors, you have students, administrators, and the staff who range from maintenance workers, IT, custodians, and more. However, there are huge differences between the types of professors that you have. There are tenure-track professors, tenured professors, of which there are different levels, 
non-tenure track professors, including faculty lecturers at McGill, and adjunct professors who are called lecturers at McGill. They're also not tenure track. You also have teaching assistants who are usually grad students who are writing theses, taking courses, and trying to pay their bills. So tenure is an indefinite academic appointment that can be terminated only for cause or under extraordinary circumstances, such as financial issues or program discontinuation. Basically, once a professor is tenure, it's really hard to fire them. Remember this because this will come up again in our lecture about violence, sexual violence, and sexual assault. Tenure track professors are people who are hired and are eligible for tenure after around a six-year period. Tenure is awarded at research universities such as McGill based primarily on one's research outputs, such as the books a scholar has written or the articles that they have published, and then on their teaching and then on their service work, which has to do with supervising students, being on committees, and organizing events. Service work is valued the least and is disproportionately done by women faculty members and faculty members of color. Professors do a lot more than teach. A huge part of our job is doing research, writing, and publishing articles and books. We also write grants, sit on committees, organize conferences, speak at conferences, and do a variety of other kinds of work. Tenure track professors at McGill tend to teach two classes in the fall and two courses in the winter term. Some teach less. I'm a non-tenure track faculty lecturer. I have a three-year appointment I'm not eligible for tenure. I teach four courses in the fall and three courses in the winter term and am paid significantly less. As McGill is a public institution, you can actually look up the salaries of all of your instructors, deans, and administrators. I have some job security with a three-year contract. Some faculty lecturers just have one-year contracts. The folks with the least financial stability and job security are adjuncts or lecturers. Adjuncts are hired on a course-by-course basis, often not knowing more than a few weeks in advance, in many cases, they're teaching a course. McGill adjuncts are part of a union. Faculty lecturers and tenure track and tenured faculty are not. This means that folks like myself can get paid below union rates per course. At Concordia, faculty are unionized. Over the past two decades, universities had depended more and more on adjuncts. In Canada, about 50% of courses are taught by adjuncts. In the United States, about 70% are taught by adjuncts. Then you also have non-tenure track faculty like myself who are also teaching a bunch of classes. Women and folks of color are more likely to be hired as adjuncts or non-tenure track positions. These positions are teaching heavy and service heavy, which are less valued when applying for research grants. This can be a downward spiral. Even when folks of color and women are on the tenure track, they're less likely to get tenure. Adjuncts in some cases are paid as little as $1,200 per course. This has led to a rise of unhoused adjuncts and adjuncts on food stamps in the United States. However, you might be thinking, what does this mean for you as a student? Adjuncts and non-tenure track folks are teaching a lot of your courses. Adjuncts at McGill have PhDs or in some cases, often for summer courses, are almost done with their PhD. Non-tenure track faculty have strong research records and can be fantastic teachers and scholars. However, for you as a student, it means it's harder to have access to a professor consistently. It's harder to find supervisors for research projects and folks to write letters of recommendation. In the GSFS program, we currently do not have any full-time tenured faculty. Professors Bobby Benedicto and Maria Wang are tenure track and are only half appointed 
the GSFS program with Dr. Benedicto, also appointed in art history and communications, and Dr. Wang, who is currently on leave right now, is also appointed in East Asian studies. This term, five of the six professors teaching gender, sexuality, feminist, and social justice studies courses are not tenure track. So what this means is that, for example, GSFS courses that were taught last fall were by me, Dr. Pascal Graham, Dr. Yolanda Munoz, Dr. Rachel Samuel, and PhD candidate Suzanne Kite, all mostly taught by women on short-term contracts lasting from one semester to three years. Universities have pushed for contract labor as it makes it cheaper for them. For students, it means that a smaller and smaller percentage of your tuition is actually going to pay for faculty wages, and there are fewer professors you can do research with, get recommendation letters from, and know that you will see on campus next year. I think it's really important for you to understand how the university works as your students here. This push of contract work affects you and the kinds of courses you get to take, research opportunities, and more. The pandemic has affected us all in different ways, and I anticipate that many of its effects will be felt for years to come. Over the summer of 2020, I was not paid any additional money to convert my courses to an online context, even though I had taught this course already over eight times over the past six years, and you would think it would be really easy peasy, but from the perspective of my work in the university, teaching online is actually a lot more labor intensive. Writing out the transcripts averaged about six to seven hours per lecture and oftentimes more. And this does not account for the updates either that I've done in 2021. Normally, I prepare my lectures with bullet points or slides as I feel comfortable being able to speak to these issues. I'd ask the class questions, we would have points to discuss, and you could raise your hand and challenge a point that I made, ask a question, or seek clarification. With lectures being recorded, I need to be very exacting. For accessibility, I need to write out full transcripts and even recording first and using an AI transcriber would mean going back through by hand. I had to record and edit every audio file. I was not paid for any of this additional labor. I also had to teach myself all the skills to do this by the materials, software, and hosting rights. I also taught four courses in the fall of 2020 with Reset for Preps. Fortunately, this fall of 2021, I'm teaching three courses because both sections of GSFS 200 have been combined rather than teaching two sections, totaling 230 students, I'm teaching one section of two other courses, the honor seminar and the graduate course. So while it's technically a course reduction, I actually have more students. Remember that we have 22 lectures in this class, all with transcripts. In total, after tracking my hours in 2020, I found that I had spent 200 hours converting the course to an online context, which was more than 100 additional hours of unpaid labor or uncompensated labor of doing this conversion on the course than I would have had this course still been in person. This was all when I was trying to finish my book and do other components of my job that I have to do over the summer. In the summer of 2021, as I've updated the course, updated the lectures, transcripts, audio and course materials, my updates to the online material have taken more time than teaching the course during a traditional in-person fall semester. All of this is to say, asynchronous classes require much more work in advance of the class happening and require work throughout the semester itself. These labor issues are not unique to me, but are spread throughout the university. A motivating factor for writing, recording, editing, and publishing all of the lectures in advance of the course starting is so that even if I get sick or part of the teaching team gets sick, you can all have the materials that you need to be able to finish the semester. 
Last semester, I was asked to create a plan in case I was unable to continue teaching, a coded way for saying getting sick or dying. There are 250 of you formally taking this class. I want to have all the materials done, and I don't want there to be any additional chaos in your life if something happens to my health during the semester. I really wish I got to meet with you all in person and have class discussions. The format of this course is really centered around trying to make this course as accessible to you all as I possibly can. I realize that some of you are probably frustrated with my email policy and are frustrated that the courses are not happening on campus. I'm paying each TA 50 hours of each of their contracts to answer your emails at union rates so that we can actually be responsive. Still, please, 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 please read the syllabus first before emailing. I'm trying to be as transparent as possible because I think transparency is key to labor organizing. I think it's key to creating a more socially just world. So what is my point? Universities are deeply flawed workplaces and rely a lot on unpaid labor and on a lot of it. Gender and race disparities definitely exist here for students, instructors, and staff. We can definitely see this at McGill. In 2020, we have 0.5% Black faculty and 0.6% Indigenous faculty. As Charmaine Nelson, an art history professor at McGill says, I think that's unacceptable. To put this in other words, there are fewer than 10 of McGill's 1,700 faculty who are Black professors. Dr. Nelson has actually decided to leave McGill and will now be a professor at Nova Scotia College of Art and Design at the University of Halifax. Today's lecture has covered a lot of topics. We talked about labor movements in the U.S. and Canada, neoliberalism, the feminization of poverty, the problem with the lean-in discourse, income inequality, pushes for living wages, how class is racialized and gendered, the rise of the gig economy, LGBTQ plus worker discrimination, unfair wages for people with disabilities, and how these issues play out in the university. We will continue to talk about these topics. There are also many things I wanted to include in this lecture and did not. I also realized that I said, there is a link in the transcript multiple times in this lecture. I want to provide you with resources and the ability to cite these sources, but I don't expect you to look at all the links. I just want to make them available to you. I'm aware that this is a long lecture. This topic will continue in the next lecture and the topic of, in the topic of labor and the following lecture on the topic of sex work. I want to finish by saying, your value is not determined by your productivity. You're more than your job. You're inherently valuable because you exist. All the songs, videos, images, and graphics in the podcast and transcript belong to their respective owners, and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sound is schoolbell.wave from 13F Panska Transcript of Michaela, and closing bell is from Inspector J's bell counter a.wave of freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in the Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted to authorize use of copyrighted materials for specific mandated purposes. In Canada, these purposes include research, privacy, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news report. For research and privacy, education, parody, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an advertisement-free podcast used for educational purposes.